Hello and welcome! The Purdue Institute for the Study of the Iranian World is proud to introduce you to our new podcast, Legacies of Ancient Persia. Our show will focus on the power of legacy. A legacy consists of three critical elements, a past, a present, and a future. Some pasts may be a deep and rich history, while others may be more recent. A present involves the sharing and analyzing of this cultural memory, whether deep-seated or more contemporary. And a future involves the goal of preserving for future generations the knowledge and understanding that has been gained from these current studies. Join us as we explore the legacies of ancient Persia and its relevance to global patrimony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Legacies of Ancient Persia. This week, our guest is Dr. Daniel Potts, a professor of ancient Near Eastern archaeology and history at New York University's Institute for the Study of the Ancient World. In this episode, we discuss the challenges of not being able to travel to Iran for fieldwork, run through a brief recap of the Elamites and Persian prehistory, and learn more about Dr. Potts' new book on the importance of kinship in ancient Iran, particularly during the Elamite period. We hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give our show a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. Hello! Thank you, thank you so much for joining me, Dan. I'm super excited, and thank you so much for agreeing to come on our exciting new show, Legacies of Ancient Persia. I want to dig right in and ask you probably one of the coolest, most important questions I can ask you, which is, where did your interest in the field of Achaemenid studies in ancient Persia, where did this interest come from and where did it start? Well, thanks, Lexi. Um, yeah, it was entirely accidental in the sense that uh, growing up, I knew nothing about the subject or the area. And I had very little exposure to anything archaeological, although in high school, I had a very good ancient history teacher. And he he definitely put a, a love of let's say, yeah, Greek and Roman history sort of in my head. But I didn't go on with that at all. And it was when I went to college, I really stumbled in my very first semester into a an ar- a kind of archaeology class, which was for beginners. It was meant to be an introduction to the great civilizations of the world, new world and old world. And it happened to be taught by um, a professor, Lambert Karlovsky, who worked in Iran, had an excavation in Iran at the time. This is back in the early 70s. So we're talking like 50 plus years ago. And, um, you know, it wasn't exactly, I mean, I just found it all kind of fascinating, though his big focus, really exclusive focus, was the Bronze Age. And I went on and became his student, and I did an undergraduate thesis, and a, then I did a PhD. It was all Bronze Age. And I didn't really come to the study of the later periods, Elamites and Achaemenids, until much, really much later. But it was it really started when I, I thought in my teaching, as I was teaching on Iran, and I felt kind of responsible for giving a a broad overview from origins, let's say, origins up to the Islamic conquest that I really had to, and I really wanted to know more about 
the periods I hadn't studied as a student, uh, but which I was responsible for lecturing on. And it was just as I found out more and more about first the Elamites and then the Achaemenids that my interest just expanded uh, and has expanded even further as well chronologically. Uh, but that's sort of how I got into this in the first place. That's awesome. But I'm curious, was part of coming to it later also a direct result of there not being like proper classes on ancient Persia being available during the, the collegiate years as well? Yeah, you could say, I mean, what was available to me um, was arche the archaeology of Iran, not even, you know, and my professor made no attempt to comprehensively introduce us to Iranian prehistory or archaeology. He taught what he liked, and what he liked happened to be the Bronze Age of Eastern Iran and its relationship to the civilizations of Mesopotamia and the Indus Valley and Central Asia, all of which is perfectly interesting, but it leaves you very uh, ignorant about everything else. Meanwhile, across the street, literally, uh, in the Department of Near Eastern Languages, I could possibly have studied Old Persian and definitely some other Iranian languages, um, but I didn't. Uh, I was a hardcore archaeologist and anthropological archaeologist, and there was no encouragement. Uh, those were considered the late periods, said with the most pejorative kind of inflection, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was not something that, that I was encouraged to do. But one other thing that I forgot to mention is the fact that after the Iranian Revolution, of course, in 1979, it became impossible to go there. So I had had the good fortune as an, as an undergraduate to go to Iran and work uh, on the excavation of a site called Tepe Yahya in southeastern Iran in Kerman province. Um, and that was in 1973 and 1975. And then came the revolution in 79, and no more foreign archaeologists could work in Iran for a very, very long time. But in 1995, um, when I was teaching at the University of Sydney in Australia, the opportunity arose to lead a tour of archaeological and historical sites uh, through a tour agency in Tehran, uh, bringing a, a group of you know, intelligent cult, sort of cultural tourists from Australia to to Iran. Um, and because Australia had never broken off diplomatic relations with Iran, they had an embassy in Tehran, relations were normal. Um, and, you know, it was fine for an Australian tour group with Australian tour guides to to do such a tour. And so um, my wife and I, in fact, led a tour in 95, 96, and then again in 2001. And those were the times, those were the, that was, so 1995 was the first time that I was able to visit Persepolis, Pasargadi, the sort of big and famous Achaemenid sites. Because in the, in the 70s, when I was going to the excavation, 
you know, it was, you get on a plane, fly to Turkey, cross the country to Iran, get on a bus or into some kind of truck or something, drive to the southeast to Kerman to the excavation, turn around, go home. There was no visiting anything cultural. And really, you know, Shiraz, which is close to Persepolis and Pasargadi and the royal tombs of the Achaemenids, that's really quite far away from where I was in southeastern Iran in Kerman province. So it was only in the 90s that I saw Persepolis and I saw Pasargadi. And of course, that, you know, aroused my interest as well. And I think, you know, there there's a lot of specialization in archaeology. And for some people, they would say, well, you know, I was trained to work on the Bronze Age. That's what I do. Whereas I have never had that attitude. Rather, I started in the Bronze Age. But once I got exposed to other periods, I thought, oh, that's pretty interesting. You know, I'd like to know more about that. And I And I wasn't shy about actually kind of building my competence in these other periods, whereas, you know, lots of people who specialize in the Achaemenid period would no more look at the Elamite, either early or prehistoric or Chalcolithic than fly to the moon, whereas I haven't had that, you know, inhibition, you could say, <laughs> for better or for worse. <laughs> That's so great. That's so great. And how fortunate you were to be able to go to Iran early before the revolution. I mean, yes, you couldn't see a lot of things. So obviously, maybe it's not like the, the, the perfect, wonderful trip where you get to see all the things and do the things. But goodness, I mean, I don't think anyone knew, right? Looking back at that time, like, oh, that that's, that's it. At least you could go. No, exactly. And I, and I always, you know, the, the excavation that I was part of, had its final season in 1975. It it was not imposed from out with outside. It was the director's decision. He'd been working there since 1967, which is not such a hugely long time. Um, but he decided that that was that for that site. And then I, I mean, I was very loyal to that project. I wrote my dissertation on that project. And I didn't seek out opportunities to go to other sites in 1976 or 1977 or 1978, uh, which subsequently I, you know, regretted bitterly because, as you say, it was nobody realized that this was not going to it was going to be closed off. And then it was really closed off for over 20, 21, 22, 23 years. And then when it was possible only under very difficult and stringent conditions. So, yeah, I mean, and at the time, of course, there, in retrospect, there was a lot of talk about Savak, the secret police, and how repressive the Shah's regime was, you know, and I heard a little bit of chat about that in just in my travels. And we had a, we actually had a government representative who then continued to work in the Iranian Cultural Heritage Organization until his death, which, or I guess he retired, but he died a few years ago. Um, and he was, he definitely had an anti-American sort of chip on his shoulder. So there was a certain, you know, bit of tension that I picked up. 
But honestly, we were living in a tiny mud brick village, no electricity, no running water, just interacting with the local villagers, who we, whom, some of whom we employed um, as workmen. And then, you know, I was in various places like Kerman and Tehran and just, you know, briefly in transit and going out on the streets and going to the bazaar. I, I didn't sense any kind of revolution coming and i didn't sense how uh repressive the regime was if you were on the you know saying or doing the wrong things there was a lot of sort of lively life in in tehran and i thought it was all pretty amazing we stayed at the british institute of persian studies david stronach who excavated pasargadi was the director and lots and lots of foreign teams passed through there because it was functioned as a hostel on the way out to excavations. So I had, you know, really a very, very nice experiences. Um, but, you know, certainly didn't see the revolution coming. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's, it's too bad. That's the way it goes. Sometimes I feel like a lot of places and, and incidents in, in the world, no one saw them coming. And then suddenly we we're just hit and we're like, Oh, okay, yeah. well, I guess now we can't access things to study them and then we kind of hope for the best. But yeah. I would definitely say, you know, having the opportunity to go, right, and, and see some of the country, I'm sure, really helped cement this this interest, which is something I, I would hope happens to anyone who wants to study any part of the ancient world they, that hopefully they could go there and, and see it and, and remember why they love it or want to go study it. So for students today, you know, who can't go and, and see it now and are, hope, you know, ho hopefully just, just waiting t for that for that moment, you know, I, I do see that as kind of a barrier to entering this field. If you say, oh, well, I can't go there. Oh, but I could go to Turkey or I could go to Greece or Italy. Um, I, I You know, it's kind of an, a disadvantage for, for Persian studies. So do you have any advice for someone who may not be yeah. able to go there? Yeah, no, I, it's it's not exactly advice, just a, a few observations that, um, yeah, I think you're entirely right. If you can work in Turkey, you can work in Israel, you can work in Bulgaria, right? You can work a lot of places. Um, why then, unless something has really grabbed you in one of your classes about this, about the subject of Iran, ancient Iran, uh, why would you focus on that? I think it would it would take an unusual teacher and an unusual student to be for the teacher to be able to, you know, inspire students, and for the student who who can't who realizes he or she can't go in the near future to invest their time studying that subject. You know, I I remember once being shocked by a colleague who said to me, well, you know, this is after the revolution. Well, you know, students can't go there. So I, I've given up teaching it. I just don't teach it anymore. What's the point? Well, I, I found that a very depressing thought. And I, I remember saying, you know, when I was a student, I had a professor, a very famous professor of Chinese archaeology, um, who had whose family had come to the United States after World War II or after the communist, you know, takeover. And um, 
he taught Chinese archaeology all his life, and he was not able to go back to China until very late in his life, but he was eventually, you know, as things opened up, he was able to go to China and to with Chinese archaeologists. And so I, I always remember that and think, well, you know, yeah, we have a problem here. <laughs> Maybe uh, one can't go there for 10, 20 years, 30 years, who knows? But that doesn't mean that the subject is any less valid. And certainly, this is a subject that has been of great interest for centuries, right? So personally, I'm not going to let that kind of dampen my enthusiasm. But I do understand why students, given a choice, you know, who can be told, oh, come, you know, you can work on this Hittite site in Turkey, or you can study Iranian archaeology, but sorry, you won't be able to go there. Of course, I understand that. And what I did after I after the Iranian Revolution, when it was clear that I was no longer, at least in the near term, going to be able to work there, I started to work in Saudi Arabia and then in the United Arab Emirates. But I, as where I consciously kept close to the Persian Gulf because those were areas that had the closest connection historically to Iran. And so I was able to still kind of engage with Iranian archaeology and Iranian history uh, in a way that I wouldn't have been if I just said, well, that's it. I'm going to Syria or I'm going to Yemen. You know, that would have been that. But I didn't I didn't do that. And so when it did become possible in the late 90s, early 2000s to even talk to Iranian officials about some kind of a joint project, um, I was still very much on the on the you know involved in the subject of ancient Iran. I never really left that. And and also to your point about being able to see the country, I think you know even though my experiences were very limited geographically speaking and and they didn't extend over months and months and months, it did somehow infect me with a great love of Iran and uh, almost a sort of irrational love. Because when you think about it, you know, I have no family connection to Iran. It's not, they're not my ancestors that I'm studying, right? And and yet um, there's just something about the landscapes, which are very different from the desert, you know, step of the Southeast up to the Caspian, you know, across to the Zagros Mountains. It's all very varied, but there's something about Iran, Iranians, Iranian food, and you know Iranian history that I just find fascinating, and and you know so it did sort of grab me in a way that uh, really nothing else has, and I just keep on finding interesting things to research and write about, even though I'm not going there. Yeah. Coming from classics, I felt the same way about going to Greece for the first time. I think I landed at the airport, and then my first night in Athens, I said, oh, this is it. This is why I study this. This is why I love Greece. So I get it. I mean, it's it's a really, like, almost indescribable feeling. You just get someplace, and you say, ah, for whatever reason, this place and this these people, this culture has has a strange power, and it's yeah. it's lovely. And and I do hope that you know, hopefully one day 
people will get to go back and, and they can go see these sites and um, scholarship should be for everyone. But I do want to eventually circle down to your book. But I do kind of want to situate both myself yep. and our audience for those who aren't as familiar with the geography in the area and some of these names that might pop up. So when we talk about ancient Persia, we do talk about ancient Iran, but then there are a lot of other ancient Near Eastern civilizations that kind of get confused and lost. So when I talk to people, a lot of people ask, oh, well, what about Sumer and Assyria? And they kind of confuse these things all in one little circle or large oval. So I am curious because you did mention your interest in the Elamites. Now, from someone who did not study ancient Persia, I'm like, I vaguely remember that. I mean, I've been around it because I work sort of in academia, but most people would recognize and say, oh, maybe did I hear that from the Bible or did I hear that from just a a vague class on ancient Mesopotamia. So can you situate us to to who the Elamites were and where geographically they were? Yeah, so the Elamites are a people who inhabited the southwestern portion of Iran, uh, what is today the province of Khuzestan, uh, where the big city of Ahwaz is, and also Fars, where Shiraz and the later famous Achaemenid sites of Persepolis and Pisargadi are. Um, and, you know, the, the term gets bandied about, correctly or incorrectly, that this is an Aboriginal population. So at least as far as we can tell, going back to the beginnings of the third millennium, or, you know, we can't really talk about anything earlier because that's prehistoric and we don't have any way of identifying people by name. But at least in the third millennium, the Elamites are already visible and there and leaving written records and inhabiting big sites like Susa, which was inhabited for a very long time, for over 4,000 years. And so they were situated right to the just to the east of Babylonia, the southern portion of modern Iraq, where the Tigris and Euphrates are, Assyria is to the north. And for centuries, really for millennia, they were rivals. They sometimes were involved in alliances, but they were more often rivals of their neighbors uh, to the west. And the Persians really don't appear on the scene until the ninth century BC, when the first um, Iranian, linguistically Iranian names start to appear in Assyrian sources. When the Assyrians now in the ninth century are expanding and they're campaigning to the east into the Zagros, they are campaigning against other so-called Aboriginal groups living north of the Elamites, groups like the Meneans, for example, who are in modern-day Azerbaijan, the northwestern province of Iran, um, around Lake Urmia. And gradually, you you start to find more and more linguistically Iranian names uh, in, in the references that the Assyrians have left. And so it's there's a sort of slightly, uh, well, more than slightly, unclear 
uh, progression as you go from the ninth century down to the sixth century, you have these references to Iranians. You also have an area called Elippi, which is in modern day Luristan, just north of where the site of Susa is. And then you start to have more references to Persians. And for example, at Susa itself, in the earlier 6th century, early mid-6th century, there are references to Persians, people of Parsa, in texts written in Elamite from Susa. And the next thing we know, we have Cyrus the Great and his conquests that lead to the formation of a kingdom. Uh, and we have a little bit of turmoil. And then we have Darius, the first who really is the first true Achaemenid. Um, and we have the Achaemenid dynasty then lasting until Alexander comes along in the 330s. Um, so the Elamites were, were there very much in the same area that, the, that became the heartland of the Persians. And there are many, many different theories about the Persians' origins. Because they spoke an Iranian language, old Iranian language, which is not native to the Iranian plateau as such, it's an Indo-European language, people, and because they're not present, at least as far as we can see in the written sources of the Assyrian and Babylonian world, they're not present before the ninth century. So therefore, people, many people assume, okay, they came in from somewhere. Where did they come in from? Well, they could have come from further north, through the Caucasus down into northwestern Iran, where they're first attested. Other people have suggested they came from Central Asia, down the eastern sort of side of the Caspian, onto the Iranian plateau. Either way, they don't seem to have been indigenous to the area. Uh, and then they do intermingle in a, in a certain sense with the Elamites, and they learn a lot from the Elamites. So that, for example, at Persepolis, which becomes the capital, one of the capitals of the Persian Empire under Darius and then his successors, they continue to use the Elamite language for written economic records. So Elam is eclipsed, becomes then just a province of the Persian Empire, but it was definitely a precursor. And in the Bronze Age, it was a very, at, at times, it was a very powerful, you know, contestant and rival of uh, the states that were in Babylonia and Assyria. So the Elamites are very interesting. Uh, uh, it's, it's, in, it's also interesting that modern Iranians uh, rightfully identify with ancient Iranians, the first manifestation of whom are the Persians of the Achaemenid period, right? And they also identify with the later Iranians who are part of the Sasanian Empire in late antiquity. But they definitely do not identify with the Elamites. The Elamites, as I said, are kind of considered an aboriginal population that was there before the arrival of the Persians. But linguistically, Old Persian is very clearly related to New Persian, the language spoken today. And it's very easy for modern Iranians to identify with them. Whereas 
the the Elamite substratum, so to speak, it would be a bit like, you know, Americans identifying uh, with a Native American past, which they know full well is not theirs because they are descended from colonists that came from Europe. And in the same way, these Persians probably came from somewhere else, moved into Iran, and really had no relationship to the preceding civilization. Although once they were there and overlapped, they interacted, they learned from uh, from them. And so similarly in the Indus, in, in Pakistan and India, it, you know, there's no real kind of, let's say, genetic justification or biological or linguistic justification for people to identify with the Harappan civilization of the Bronze Age. They know they were there, but modern Indians really identify more with the Sanskrit tradition, which again, like the Persian one, is an Indo-European one. But the Harappan civilization, like the Elamites, is a much more ancient one. That was there when these other there, these later peoples arrived on the scene. Mm. It's interesting, as I was hearing you talk about how the persons did kind of come from somewhere else and, and, and came down, just drawing a little on, on my classics background, it, it sounds like it echoes the theory of the Dorian invasion of Greece, right. you know, like yeah, a mythic yeah. people coming down and yeah. in, and then suddenly you become descended from this line of, of heroes yeah. suddenly. So it's it's interesting, but I mean, it also shows you how sort of migration worked in the ancient world and how people, you know, borders were not really a thing. So people could just sort of move wherever, whenever they wanted to. And if you had a large enough group, they would become the, the dominant peoples. So and really, there's no, you know, the in later times in the uh, early medieval period, 10th century, you have the great Persian poet Ferdowsi, who wrote a, a, a fictitious so-called Book of Kings, the Shahnameh, which has within it uh, kind of periods of early history that precede the Persians. But it's, it's all very mythological, and it's uh, it's not something that you can then uh, certainly you can't find seeds in that of this pre-Persian Elamite uh, past. And the Elamites being only one of the indigenous groups, but they happened to be the group that was in the area that later became so central to the Persians. Uh, but as I mentioned, there are other groups all up and down the Zagros everywhere. It's just that we know their names in the Zagros in Western Iran because of the Assyrian and Babylonian sources. Uh, so they they name lots of peoples, lots of small rulers and place names as well. It's not to say that the rest of the country wasn't inhabited, but that was beyond the, the scope of their military campaigns. Therefore, there's no written record about those places till there's writing in Iran itself. Mm, okay okay how interesting i do okay but i'm i'm excited because i do want to get to your book and i and i know that it's set to release soon ah, and yes. and so i've seen a little bit from from what i could glean because it's not out obviously 
Yeah. Um, but yeah. it's interesting because I was so I, I was so taken with the theme of, of kin and kinship. When I think of kin and kinship now, I'm sure that had a very different it has a very different connotation than what it would have meant in ancient Persia. So could you tell us just a little bit about what did that mean to the ancient Persians? Yeah. So I mean my my particular archaeological upbringing was as an anthropological archaeologist, meaning I was in a department of anthropology where archaeology was one of the, you know, sections. Having said that, we didn't learn a lot of anthropology, right? By which I mean social or cultural anthropology. Um, it was there, but it was, you know, the, the offerings that we were required to take were minimal, let's put it that way. Um, and it seems, you know, so archaeologists who consider themselves anthropologists, and I am not particularly anthropological, but archaeologists who consider themselves anth anthropologists somewhat bizarrely have paid very little attention to kinship, even though kinship is one of the huge sub-areas within social anthropology. And certainly in the 19th and uh, 20th centuries, it was like mainstream open any anthropological journal uh, and you'll find studies on the kinship system of this group or that group, you know, anywhere in the world. So that was sort of in the back of my mind. And then the fact is that if you're looking at the written records that the Elamites left, or you're looking at um, Greek records, Herodotus on the Achaemenids, um, or you're looking at the accounts of the uprising that, that brought Darius uh, to power, um, and certainly later, kinship is, is there all throughout. And a few classicists have have looked into it um, because there'll be you know specific references to this king having this brother or marrying this cousin and so forth. Um, so these things have been noted, but not but the people who have noted them have generally not dug deeper uh, to show that actually whatever was going on that seems to have been influenced by kin relations, brothers and sisters, parents, children, cousins, marriage patterns, that, that those acts all can be explained or, or conform to uh, the broader body of literature on kinship that we have now from around the world. And the reason I say that is that often scholars of the ancient world will say, you know, that something was an aberration. Let's say an incestuous marriage, brother-sister marriage, uh, or father-niece marriage was some sort of crazy aberration. Um, without actually looking at the anthropological literature to see, A, that it wasn't an aberration, 
B, that there are plenty of other examples, and C, that anthropologists have discussed these for the last 150 years. So there's no, you know, terrific mystery there. So in these lectures that I gave uh, a few years ago at UCLA, which are the which have been now turned into this book, I focused on some of these examples and tried to elucidate them in light of anthropological literature. And uh, and they span the full gamut from prehistory to the Sasanian period. And mainly, again, because I thought it was an understudied uh, area of, of scholarship on on ancient Iran. And, and I think there are a lot of pretty clear explanations and pretty clear parallels and insights to be drawn from from the anthropological literature to help contextualize all of these things, which, as I said, too often have been deemed aberrations and weird things about the Persians did this or the Elamites did that. I mean, it sounds fascinating, and I almost hate to ask this question because I, you, you know, there's probably not an easy easy answer. But if you boiled the book down to like a big takeaway for a reader, what would you say it is or want it to be? Oh, I think it would just be that that there is nothing, you know, strange and mysterious and weird about either the Elamites or the Persians that that you can't find in umpteen other cultures, both ancient and modern. And that really, when it comes to human relations, we're all human, right? And and things like incestuous marriage have occurred everywhere. And scholars have written a lot about, you know, trying to understand this. One of the things which um, particularly sort of struck me was that there was a uh, there was an institution, and this institution can be found all over the world, in which succession to kinship is not by a son of the king, but by a son of the king's sister. And there are various explanations for this. And the short answer, let's say, the short, the shortest, most kind of direct explanation is that a king or a male can never be sure that the that a son by his wife is actually his son. But he can be sure that the son of his sister is of his blood, because through the sister. And so the the term sister's son as an epithet gets used by many, many, like over a dozen Elamite kings. And people thought, going back to the early 20th century, that sister's son necessarily meant that there was an incestuous relationship between the king and his sister, because the king would never have anybody other than his son succeed him. Well, that's simply wrong. All over the world, from Norse sagas to Irish uh, you know, literature to Beowulf to the South Pacific, the sisters to Africa, 
the sister's son frequently inherits the role of, of, of chief or king, not the direct son of the king, right? And going back into the 1920s, there was an article. In fact, when this, this phenomenon was first detected, when people were first working on cuneiform texts uh, in which this was was mentioned, and one of the early scholars, an early German scholar, uh, Heinrich Winkler, in about 1905, said, ah, this reminds me of a passage in Tacitus, where it is said that the chief particularly favors the son of his sister. Um, and it went nowhere. And then in the 1920s, an, another uh, actually Austrian scholar said, of course, there's ethnological or anthropological uh, cases of this, but I'm not going to look at that. I'm just going to deal with this. And then proceeded to assume it meant an incestuous marriage. Had he looked at the literature, he would have seen that, no, it's not an incestuous marriage. It's not the son of an, an incestuous marriage. It's well attested all over the world. It's an uncle-nephew relation. And that is, there are dozens of cases. So that that is one example where I just think it's it's really very worthwhile not staying in your little box and saying, well, sorry, I only read Greek and Latin texts or I only look at Assyrian you know, stuff. No, sorry, these are people. These people behave like other people behave. You've got to understand them. You've got to look at sociological or anthropological literature about people and their kinship relations. It's not, it should not be severed from the rest of the world and treated as an exotic uh, conundrum or, or aberration that, you know, is simply characteristic of this weird civilization that existed and, and, you know, end of story. So yeah, that's a long answer to your short question. <laughs> No, I love it. And and I love how in that answer, we got a, a sense of how interdisciplinary your book and your work can be. I mean, even when you were talking, I was thinking, okay, well, this is so interesting, because how would this translate? So two different cultures came to mind, right? You have the ancient Greek civilization, which very based on sort of which warlord is going to come next, and who's going to come and replace the thing. And you know, Greece is different because it doesn't do the whole sort of hereditary divine kinship the way other ancient cultures yeah. do. But then you have a place like Egypt where, oh, but they do kind of have... But I, it's it's interesting because when you were mentioning the importance and the role of the sister's son, which seems to be heavily favored because bloodline, do we have evidence in the ancient Elamite culture of like, if the sister did not have a son, right. If she had a, a daughter, was it possible? Were female rulers a thing at any point or was, was it still very male dominated? Because I know in Egypt we do have evidence of, well, I don't want to trust this person or this person. So I'll put the, the girl in charge. Yeah. yeah no, I, I think, uh, you know, it's not, Every ruler who uses the epithet or gets called sister's son of usually it's it's the self-referential 
thing. It's not every single one, but it's it's a, an awful lot of them. Um, there are queens or wives are mentioned, but they're not actually rule in a ruling position. And then another kind of kinship issue is that um, there were inter interdynastic marriages. So, for example, the Elamites of like the 13th century BC uh, and late 14th century BC married daughters of the Kassite kings in Babylonia. So the Kassites were the ruling dynasty from the middle of the second millennium to about the 1200s uh, in Mesopotamia. And there, there's a series, there's about half a dozen Elamite kings who were married to these Kassite princesses, um, if you want to use that term. But there's not exactly, no. And actually, the, the role of the sisters, the, the, the very mention of the sister has given rise, again, to a completely unfounded supposition that there was a matriarchy. It, it wasn't a matriarchy, right? And once again, I'm, it's all the same to me whether it was or it wasn't. I don't have any... You know, I don't care. I just need to see the evidence. And there just isn't evidence of that. Um, so, yeah, that that's, uh, I wouldn't say there were any queens per se that, that there were, you know, and again, also in, in, let's say, in Assyria, where we know the names of some prominent queens. Uh, yeah, they were prominent and they were wealthy and they had property. Um, they didn't, they didn't rule the, the land however and i think that's the case too and in 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 the persian period in the achaemenid uh persian context there are some there are several very powerful women uh mentioned for example in the economic texts from persepolis who owned a lot of property uh had a lot of wealth uh seemed to have had their own household so to speak um even if they were married um, but they weren't queen like in the sense that Darius was the king. They were clearly powerful and clearly influential. And from the Greek sources, too, there are plenty of references to very influential wives and mothers who play a, an important role, um, clearly have a lot very high status and who are listened to, let's say, by men. But they they are not the primary, you know, ruler of of a of the country. Let's say. Interesting. Okay. I mean, I, it really serves to put certain ancient cultures like Egypt in a, in a very distinct box, where you say, "Oh, okay, so this one does have female rulers," but it really does yeah. show that even in a in a geographical region that is closer to ancient Egypt and some other ancient cultures, it's still interesting how it's so very different. How, okay, down here they do one thing and that's acceptable yeah. and it's fine, but over here they just don't. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, does yeah. does geography in, in, in this, in one sense, also serve to differentiate why maybe the ancient Persians and the Elamites would do one thing and some place like Egypt would feel comfortable putting a woman in power. Is it, 
I mean, the, the Iranian plateau, I mean, it's quite open. I mean, of course, you have the mountains, but um, geographically, right, it's not like the Nile where it's very protected on all sides. And so you're not sort of waiting for, oh, yeah. what next tribe or people or whoever is going to move in and present a threat. Yeah, no, I I don't, I, I have no good answer for that. But it's a, you know, it, I don't, I don't think, um, you know, it's the same in Babylonia, really, there, we know the names of some queens, we know the name as we do in, in, in Assyria, um, but not in the paramount position of, of being sole ruler, let, let us say, right? So, there's no Queen Elizabeth in Elam, right? There may be a Queen Esther, right? Which is another entirely different sort of story, uh, the biblical story in the, in the book of Esther about the very in, influential wife of either one of the Artaxerxes or Xerxes. Um, but it's not, it's it's a matter of, let's say, power behind the scenes rather more than than actually being the office holder, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, it's it's just something interesting that I picked up on. So we have a lot of books, right, on yeah. the ancient Persians, and we do have a lot of strange media adaptations. When thinking of ancient Persia from outside the field, it's becoming harder and harder to really get a good grasp of historically what in you know in actuality did these people look like or when you have things like the horrible dare i mention the 300 film yeah but but we have this weird strange orientalization and we have these weird things that we sort of attach to them um, but all I can think about is that, yes, for, I mean, I, uh, historically, I guess in, in the time that they wanted to make the film, you would have Xerxes be the, I, I guess the villain, we will call him in that context. Yeah. But, you know, why do you think we, we insist on only portraying them in this certain way as the villain? We don't have some sort of media that wants to educate and portray you know the elamites they sound so interesting from from what you're you're telling me and from what you're teaching us through through your book so i can't help but think that these these weird media portrayals don't really help us but they don't also make people want to show us something that's a little more accurate yeah no i i agree with you entirely um i mean i have i have to say Personally, I have written some kind of general books for general readers, but I haven't kind of gone out of my way to write something really popular, um, like a trade book that would really try to cast the Elamites or the Persians in a different light. And the the sort of tropes that are that exist from the classical tradition, from the Persian Wars, from Herodotus have been so, I mean, they they have so infiltrated Western society through schooling over centuries that it's very, very hard, I think, to to break uh, break them. I mean, they've been totally broken in in scholarship, but 
it's another story to, you know, if a film producer comes along and says, oh, I think I'll make a film about the Persians. Well, they were a feat. They were effeminate. They were defeated at Salamis and, you know, so forth. Um, and yeah, I just haven't made it a kind of crusade to kind of counter these things. And, you know, from my limited observation, when a film like 300 came out, there was a big outcry by people who deplored this incorrect and simplistic depiction, but it's not as though they pointed to works that anybody could go to to see a, a more accurate portrayal of these peoples. It's just, you know, Iran still remains very much marginal. If you compare it to the scholar amount of scholarship on the biblical world or Egypt or ancient Greece and Rome, Iran, <clears throat> even amongst Near Eastern archaeologists, is still considered kind of peripheral. And, you know, I, I know I've known plenty of Mesopotamian specialists who really didn't give a second thought to Iran, even though it's right next door <laughs> to the east. So that's that's a kind of structural problem that uh you know should certainly be addressed and uh but I as I say it has not been a a priority of, for me except giving you know pop when I've given popular lectures of course but I was recently not that long ago wrote a, a sort of overview of Persian really Persian dynastic history from Darius the first to the conquest of Alexander. And, you know, many scholars have said this, but I think it's, it's important for the average reader or average listener to also realize that things like the defeats to the, by the Greeks, they didn't cause even a ripple back home, so to speak. I mean, it's a, it's a little bit like the Americans, pulling out of Vietnam or pulling out after losing any number of battles or pulling out of Korea, not pulling out of Korea, but ceasing to fight in Korea. Um, you know, they can, these things can seem like huge events and huge defeats from one perspective, from another perspective, it's like, no business went on as usual back home. The empire was really very large. And this was at the Northwestern fringe of it. Yeah, so it didn't work out, but that didn't diminish otherwise the massive size and the massive wealth and the massive kind of machinery of that empire. It was kind of a blip, really. Um, and it's just, it's putting that sort of thing in perspective, it becomes a huge thing from the European perspective, the defeat of the Persians. But I think from the Persian perspective, it really, it just wasn't. They just sort of said, okay, well, we'll just hang on to what we've got. And they did. And even in Asia Minor, it was not like they were far from Greece, but they pulled their horns in a little bit over there and then just ca carried on. <laughs> so. I mean, it it is really kind of insane to think about because, because of so much of Persian history is told from the Greek perspective. Now, yeah. I know it's a common phrase, right, that history is written by the victors, but also since 
the Achaemenid Empire didn't just collapse due to this defeat. It's no. interesting how we get this very interesting education of coming from the Greek side. You're told it's kind of like a David and Goliath situation. Oh, yes, the Greeks were David and they've beaten the giant and ha ha ha. But then when you do realize it was just like, okay, well, this this venture into this territory didn't work out. We've got a large empire. Yeah. We're fine. Yeah. You know, yeah, you... you Absolutely. And in the 18th and 19th century, it became a sort of victory for Europeans and democracy versus Oriental tyrants. And, you know, so that that it became imbued with a whole other uh, set of connotations ideologically and culturally for Europe, uh, which also then get kind of resumed in the Greek struggle against the Ottoman Empire, the Greek struggle for independence in the early 19th century. So I think all of that has just seeped into every pore of sort of Euro-American consciousness. And it's very hard to to undo it. Um, but yeah, it, it would, it. I guess it would take, and it's not as though there's any shortage of broad books about civilization but it would it will take some doing i think to write the kind of stuff that'll get that'll be popular enough that'll get exposed you know enough exposure and of course it's not just writing a trade book that's a bestseller for a week this has to get into school curricula right because if that's the way ancient history is taught then it's not going to change un until the textbooks start to change. And that's that's another whole area that is re requires a huge, huge effort. I mean, worldwide, frankly, worldwide. So that's that's a kind of massive battle to to wage. I think all ancient studies are are um yeah, I think they're all struggling with this, right? Which is, oh, would we rather have the bad, inaccurate media hit, right, that gets people interested? I mean, it, it to me, it kind of harkens to what kind of exposure and, and what will be the ripple that changes both pedagogy in classrooms and and just the, the wider public appeal. I mean, you had, for a long time, you had Egyptomania, which I guess centered on, oh, well, we don't really care how it's portrayed but if you're portraying Egypt in any way it'll get people interested and then we'll learn about it yeah. and so yeah I guess for for a field like Iranian studies you know it's like okay so do we have a bunch of media things and then just say okay well we can correct that later or yeah do do scholars focus on okay now we need to write all these popular trade books and then maybe someone will find a, a trade book and then turn it into a film that is hopefully more accurate um these are weighty questions that that uh, definitely, I think, need to be addressed. Yeah, you know, and I just think uh, it's not really the the thing I want to spend my time doing. But I I had when I was teaching at the University of Sydney, I had a little brush with this to the extent that I I had colleagues in in uh, Greek and Roman history, uh, a few of whom sat on like the state curriculum board that determined the curriculum for uh, the schools in the state. 
primary and secondary schools. And I could see how really difficult it was to get anything changed. And of course, you don't just, you know, conjure up a, a school textbook overnight. They've 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 got to be hugely broad. The Persian bit or the Greek bit is only one part of it. So it's a question of getting the right content into those places. And then the teachers are for, were for the most part, you know, educated in faculties of education with a kind of concentration on history. Yeah, they were taught a, a very traditional kind of Greek and Roman history. And all of that has to be slowly <laughs> changed for for there to be any real change, I think, in the general, you know, cognitive set setup of people uh, as regards the the Iranian world and the Persian Empire. It's it's the, there are just too many biases inbuilt. Um, it will take a Herculean effort. It will take a worldwide effort. Yeah, that's. Yeah, it's, you know, these, but uh, these are big questions that I think everyone is struggling with. So I don't think anyone can expect an answer because if we had the answer, we would be probably doing it already. And then we wouldn't yeah. even have these issues to, yeah. to ponder. So, yeah. um, but I, I want to leave you and the audience with two questions, really. And the first is, in your opinion, what do you think is the greatest legacy left to us from ancient Persia? Uh, that is a very difficult question. You know, it's not something which for most of the Western world, I don't think it's something which is is a, a very direct application in the way that, you know, people would cite democracy or philosophy from the Greeks. I with the with the Persians, uh, because they've been kind of cut off from Western civilization for so long, and were really only kind of rediscovered in the Renaissance when people from the West started to go to Iran and visited and saw the amazing uh, ruins of Persepolis, and so it's hard. I mean, there's. There's an architectural legacy, but that's, you know, that's, I don't think that is something which is uniformly felt. Um, it's, it's very hard to say. I, I, you know, I, I would not say that there's a religious legacy in the sense that there's a, there's a huge amount of debate about the, the nature of Achaemenid religion and uh, its relationship to what we know later as the main sort of aspects of Zoroastrianism. And again, one would have to say Zoroastrianism was always considered very kind of esoteric religion in Europe, in the Enlightenment. And it's hard to say that that, that you know, had a huge kind of resonance. Um, so I, I'm going to have to pass on that. I, I personally, I think, I, I have very much of the belief that you cannot understand one culture in isolation from another. That the ancient Near East was very much 
or the ancient world is very much a mosaic of different cultures that are they're worth studying in their own right, but also they're worth studying because you cannot understand what happened in Babylonia or Assyria, um, or for that matter, in certain periods in Egypt without understanding who their interlocutors were and what their relationships were with other cultures. So we might not look at the Elamites or look even look at the Persians and say, for me, this was has great resonance because of X, Y, and Z, right? But to the extent that we consider all of these cultures an important part of human history, we have to know about each and every one because they all were interacting constantly with each other. And you cannot understand how those cultures functioned um, over time without understanding, you know, like all of the gears that are intermingling in a sense, uh, in that ancient world system, right? So that to me is one major justification for studying them, even if I, as I said before, I'm not descended from them. You know, it's not like this is enhancing my 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 feelings about my own uh, kind of family's past or anything like that. But I think we need to understand them in order to understand the totality of the ancient world. Yeah, you know what? It's totally fine. It's a, such a huge question that I, I kind of expect kind of punts, which is fine because it, it, they have so they left us with so many legacies, so many incredible legacies. But also, all of the ancient world is so interconnected. So, you know, sometimes that even begs the question: Well, can you firmly say this is the legacy of this one culture alone? Maybe, maybe not. So totally understand that but the second question i did want to ask is what do you think would be the best legacy that we can leave for future students of iranian studies oh well i i would say uh, to be curious and to be open and to be uh, to not be cowed by disciplinary boundaries but to but to go beyond them every time you're digging deeply into any issue. Uh, don't follow the example of Friedrich Wilhelm Koenig of the 1920s, who simply said, I am consciously going to ignore all the anthropological evidence that might bear on this, because I just want to stick to the sources. To me, that's idiocy. One, one has to draw on every kind of conceivable uh, perspective and sources of information, and not be afraid to move forward and backward chronologically and geographically, laterally, east and west, to come to the best understanding. Use whatever resources are there and don't say, oh, well, I'm I'm just a numismatist. Sorry, I don't look at, you know, the economics of pottery production or I, I don't consider architecture. No, if you want to understand any ancient culture, you've got to deal with the totality of its manifestations. And that is the way to get to a satisfying and satisfactory understanding of what was going on, not by creating boundaries and saying, no, 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 I only, I only do this. And in the sense that I, you know, happily broke out of my Bronze Age uh, serfdom, uh, you know, all I can say is it's so much more enriching for me 
And over time, the one thing that I've particularly come to realize about myself is that I'm not interested in archaeology per se. I'm not interested in history per se. I'm very interested in Iran, and I'm interested in just about everything that pertains to Iran. And yes, I started out with the archaeology, but my interests have simply expanded over time. And I think I have a better chance of understanding any particular phenomenon if I have a much broader understanding of that phenomenon through time and uh, can look forward and backward in my sort of mental file cards on Iran. And and I just, uh, I have realized that some people feel their limitations and think, oh, no, no, I'm, you know, I would be way out of my depth if I had to do- deal with the Mongol period in Iran. Yeah, well, you don't need to become a Mongol expert, but there may be something about the economy or the geography or something technical, something specific that will resonate with you in dealing with a problem from the Achaemenid period. So, you know, I, I'm I'm just all for a much more open slather kind of approach uh, to the study of antiquity, uh, probably much more so than most of my <laughs> friends and colleagues. <laughs> wow. I mean, yeah, it's, again, big, wide open question, but because everyone does things a bit differently. But I think the main takeaways for both this and, and everything is everything's so interdisciplinary at this point. We can all be doing a billion things, a billion different small things to really leave a good legacy for the future and to study and take away lessons from these ancient cultures. So I've learned a lot. This is quite exciting. And and I did really want to thank you so, so much for, for agreeing to, to join me and, and yeah, just, just spend some time talking about your book, which I it, it sounds fabulous and I, I really do want to read it now. Thanks, Lexi. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Legacies of Ancient Persia is a Portavood podcast production, hosted and edited by Lexi Henning, with select episodes co-hosted by Marissa Stevens. Cover art provided by Hadley Leesman and original music by Brent Arhart. Established in 2017 as the premier research center for the study of ancient Iran, the mission of the Portavood Institute for the Study of the Iranian World is to engage in transformative research on all aspects of Iranian antiquity, including its reception in the medieval and modern periods, by expanding on the traditional domains of old Iranian studies and promoting cross-cultural and interdisciplinary scholarship. Thanks for listening to our show. It's available to stream on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Portavood Institute and at Portavood UCLA. Or visit our website, portavood.ucla.edu. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review us. For podcast inquiries or questions about the Portavood Institute, please email us at portavoodpodcastproduction at gmail.com. We'll see you next time as we continue our deep dive into the legacies of ancient Persia.